Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll discuss the recent mass shooting in Texas and taxes with Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Bob Casey. We'll hear about what it's like to grow up in a house with a U.S. Supreme Court justice from his son, who is also the editor of a new book about Antonin Scalia. And we'll talk to a doctor who dispels some myths about some commonly demonized foods. The mass killing of 20 people, a third of them children, in a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas last weekend, once again caused widespread sadness, followed by questions of how and why this could happen so frequently. Many are looking for legislative solutions when these tragedies unfold, wondering if tougher gun laws, increased background checks, or more focus on mental health issues might stem the tide. Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Bob Casey, a Democrat from Lackawanna County, joined us this week after the massacre in Texas to offer his opinions. He also weighed in on the GOP tax cut package during the interview. Well, it's, it's just horrific, and I just can't even imagine what it's like to be in a place of worship of all places. And here, uh, I guess the initial gunshots were through the, were from the outside, and then the gunman came into the, into the, um, uh, into the church itself, um, and then just kept shooting. I can't even begin to imagine the kind of horror that those families uh, and those victims endured. So it's, um, I think everyone is, everyone is without the adequate words on a day like today. Absolutely. And, of course, then the the questioning begins as to why an individual, as far as we know, and, of course, there may be things that come out, but this kind of, of violence on a, a big scale, total strangers to this individual, children, older people, yeah. it's just... Where do you even start to to process as as a lawmaker, and I guess as, as a human being with a family too? No, sometimes we we uh, the, the only way to to process it and to adequately uh, uh, mourn that loss is to think of it in your own in the context of your own life. I just in this case, I guess the pastor's daughter was was there and then the pastor was not he was out of town i can't imagine what that's what that's like um and i know some people don't want to go to a policy debate and and i understand that but 
I just, uh, I'm just unwilling to accept the idea that we can't, we can't take some steps in the in the direction of reducing the likelihood this could happen. Um, I know the president talked last night about mental health, and that's obviously a part of this. We haven't, we still haven't uh, reached a point where we've got uh, either policy in place or the or the uh, the mechanisms mechanisms in place to be able to to identify people that have those kinds of issues and to prevent them from getting getting a weapon. But it's good. It, like, like all these tragedies, it'll lead to a, a bigger debate. But I just uh, I just find it hard to believe that the greatest country in the world, which we are for sure, can't uh, take steps to reduce the likelihood. But that'll, that debate will continue. Sure. And uh, we know in, in the Las Vegas situation, Senator Casey, that they are doing uh, analytics on the, the brain of the shooter. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. there is there any is there anything that leads you to believe that that kind of pathology may merit some sort of result that we're not seeing? I mean, we're just literally taking we're taking stabs in the dark all the time on this stuff. You know, this guy was called uh, a loner and yeah. other things. But are I mean, do you think that might merit something in the future? Some kind of intensive study of pathology. Yeah, I sure hope so. In this case, I don't know what the uh, the the um, pathologist and the medical expert will find. I guess they have some initial conclusions, but um, that's certainly going to be. Uh, I, I think we'll at least shed some light on on his uh, state of mind. It may not have uh, application for uh, you know in every, for every circumstance. Right. Cause, each one of these has some differences. So in this case, what I don't know enough about, I just heard a little bit this morning, and I need to learn more, is whether or not, in this case, um, whether or not this individual, uh, when he was involved in that incident of domestic violence, was he convicted of a a, uh, uh, a felony or whether he was convicted of a misdemeanor? Because if he was convicted of a felony, he should not have been able to get a gun. But technically, right now, there's no prohibition uh, if you're convicted of a uh, a misdemeanor, a hate crime, or or and it could also be domestic violence. Um, those individuals are still able to get guns. So I, I don't know what the particular circumstances was, but that's I think that's worthy of some some review and study to see what. But what happened to him in this particular case? Is is the military system different than the criminal justice system? Is I think a question also that that some people may have in uh, this regard. Yeah, it's my understanding from some of the reporting last night that if you're, and this is not something we've we've uh, a lot of people have have thought about. I guess is that. If if you have a, an honorable discharge, you can get access to a weapon. If you have a dishonorable discharge, you cannot. Um, and it seems from the reporting that his discharge was uh, was uh, dishonorable. So um, that's a whole other set of questions in the context of of his military background. In, in terms of you and fellow lawmakers um, trying to get a handle on this, do you believe that? This this kind of paperwork deserves attention. Do you believe in something broader? And in in your own mind and, and with uh, your colleagues, what do you think 
should be done here? I mean, we live in a, a country where there are more guns than people at the moment. We live in a country where if you would try to somehow take people's firearms off of them, I, I think you would meet with fierce resistance. We also live in a country mm-hmm. where uh, last week we, we had uh, a truck attack that killed people in New York City. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it seems like a terribly complex situation. And uh, trying to solve it from a legislative perspective obviously falls to you. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the, the one area where I think there's a lot of consensus is the, uh, the background check issue. You, you might remember back in 2013, we had a vote in the Senate. I think, I'm not 100% certain, but I thought we got to about 56 out of 60 or 57 votes. And so that indicates a lot of bipartisan consensus um, then back in um, 2013, more than more than four years ago now. I think it was in maybe March of 13. Um, so that's one thing. Obviously, background checks um, are, are have, have wide support and I think that's still possible. I hope we could vote on that again and have a debate about it and then, and then get a vote. But even if you have a background check law in place, some of the questions still arise whether or not the system in Pennsylvania is called the NIC system, the National Criminal uh, Information System. I think I have the right words there. But that so-called NICS system, NIC, NICS, the NICS system, uh, and systems like it in, in other states, or even nationally, sometimes don't work as well as they should. I don't know enough about the the technical defects there, but um, in a country like ours, we have such technical proficiency and very smart people figuring out how to how to use technology for efficiency and how to identify um, information and, and identify, uh, in this case, identify a problem. You'd think we could perfect that to be able to instantly... Uh, check on someone's um, background uh, before they're given a, you know, a, a military-style weapon or even a handgun. So that's. I think if we at least could get progress made on mental health, as well as the get a background check law in place, and then make sure it works, which, as I just indicated, can also be an issue. We could at least reduce the likelihood. And um, look, I think it's even progress. So if Let's say there's a scenario where, where uh, in this case, someone killed 26 people. Um, are there are there ways to reduce the likelihood that he kills anyone, or are there ways to reduce the likelihood that um, he kills that many at one time? The the guy in in uh, Las Vegas, I mean, that guy had almost uh, a gun for every victim. He had he killed over, I guess he killed 58 people, and he had 47 guns or something like that somewhere in those. Those numbers might be might be off by one or two, but um, these guys come to these events or come to these uh, incidents with with an arsenal and with body armor and, and an escape plan, and so they come in a very premeditated way, armed to the teeth, like a like a almost like a small um, you know, like a small army in and of themselves. But uh, the as far as we know, Senator Casey, the um, Vegas shooter, he he passed all the checks, right? Those weapons were technically his. So are you suggesting a limit on the amount of weapons that someone may own? Well, I, just, I think we just have to ask a question. If someone is buying um, 
a lot of high-powered weapons at one time and a lot of ammunition. Um, is, 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 is that something that um, uh, we should be concerned about? I think it is. Um, it's, um, I, I, just, I just refuse to believe that the greatest country in the world can do absolutely nothing about this problem. And, and I think the response has to be more than just um, the, um, you know, the, the mental health part of this. Um, but that's, uh, that's a frustration. We, we can't seem to get beyond this uh, stalemate in the debate. And uh, frankly, we don't debate it enough because sometimes in the Congress or even in the country, an incident occurs, people debate it, they talk about it, they argue back and forth, and then it gets pushed to the side, and uh, months go by before anyone debates it again. And we somehow have to figure out a way to sustain the debate and then see if there isn't something we can do uh, that do you, is the subject of consensus. Do you see bipartisan support for anything regarding these situations? Yes, background checks. I think, I think that was demonstrated back in 2013. I hope there's more than that. But um, um, and I've supported, as you know, the the limitation on the magazine. Um, why does someone need thirty bullets at you know, or more than thirty bullets at any at any one time? Because um, the availability of that kind of capacity of, of of ammunition guarantees that when someone starts shooting, it's not going to be three or four people killed. It's going to be a much higher number. As you know, this incident was 26 people in a church. Newtown was, I guess, 27 when I saw that number on a graphic today. 20 children, and then I guess seven adults ultimately uh, in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, so, you, when you have that, the, the power of the weapon combined with with that much. Uh, that much capacity in the magazine, you're almost definitively going to have um, victim numbers that high before anyone can respond. Um, especially with a with a, a semi-automatic semi-automatic weapon, which is which is as close as you can get to an automatic weapon, which technically has been illegal since the 30s when they outlawed machine guns, but. Um, with these semi-automatic weapons, with these bump stocks, are in essence an automatic weapon. So, is there anything being done on the on the bump stocks? To your knowledge, I mean, is there anything being put together on that? I think there's bipartisan support for legislation which has been in, introduced, but so far, um, the the majority leader McConnell hasn't uh, indicated whether he'd allow that bill to come to the floor. Um, the administration uh, has been saying that they uh, uh, that they they think they might be able to deal with this uh, within within existing law within within federal government agencies. But um, I, I think if a bill like that came to the floor that was limited to this bump stock enhancement, if you want to call it that, um, I think it would pass pretty easily. Okay. And um, just a, an overview of uh, your feelings regarding the, uh, the the tax plan that was uh, put forth last week, and uh, how you think it may change with the with the Senate. And uh, do you think that there's any any merit to 
the tax plan at all? Well, look, I, I, I express real concern with the, the framework, which wasn't a bill, but it was an outline of the proposal, and it was a, it was a unified Republican framework, which meant the administration in both houses of Congress signed on to it, in essence, or at least the leadership did. Now it's a bill, and, and there's more review that we should undertake, and and certainly the review is, the, the best reviews are done by these uh, tax um, kind of tax policy think tanks that, that um, have been looking at these issues for years, and they'll be coming out with more and more analysis. But my my sense, at, the initial sense I have is there's that um, there's permanency for corporate tax cuts to the tune of a, a trillion and a half over ten years. That's one point five trillion with a T. That that there's permanence with regard to that. There's permanence with regard to the the uh, the very wealthiest, the middle class seems to get, some of the middle class seem to get a, uh, a tax break in year one and maybe a few years after that. And then there's some analysis that shows that their tax break goes away or actually their tax um, liability or t- tax uh, um, responsibility increases where they're actually, where taxes are going up in, in, in over the course of the decade. What I think we should start with is, first of all, have a process which examines the tax code for months, and that means lots of hearings. We haven't had very many in the Finance Committee. Um, what the House Republicans want to do is they introduce the bill Thursday, so they have te- bill text on Thursday. They're having a markup of that today, and markup is a, a fancy Washington word for when you consider the bill and various members of the House Ways and Means Committee can offer amendments, and the end of the markup means the committee passes the, or either passes the bill or, or doesn't. But I'm sure they have the votes for it. That means that they've considered a tax bill uh, over the course of a few days instead of what I think it requires, which is several months. So I think if we could do this in a in a in a considered um, and thorough way in a bipartisan fashion, we could get we could get uh, consensus. It's bipartisan on simplicity, on making sure the middle class gets a, a huge and, and maybe even unprecedented tax cut. And I don't think the top 1% should get a dime if we could avoid it. And they don't, the top 1% doesn't need the money. And it's not, it's not creating jobs when they get the money. Uh, if we create permanency for corporations, why can't we create a permanent tax cut for, for um, the middle class at least for 10 years? Um, but they, the, 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 the bill text so far doesn't point in that um, doesn't point in that direction. That's Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Bob Casey, who joined us earlier this week to offer his thoughts on what direction lawmakers might choose to remedy the number of mass murders in the U.S. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia in early 2016 left a contentious situation for U.S. leaders. The nominee of President Barack Obama, Merrick Garland, was not given a confirmation hearing by the GOP majority in Congress. When President Donald Trump took office, he nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch, who was confirmed to the court. The legacy of Judge Scalia is recalled in a new book edited by his youngest son, Christopher. 
The book, Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well-Lived, features the jurist's speeches from commencements, dinners, and other occasions. The book also includes an introduction by his unlikely good friend on the bench, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Christopher, I'm thinking, you know, nine kids in a house and uh, some of the things I've I've read about your family— uh, remind me of such a throwback, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but what was it like to sit around at that dinner table and, and argue uh, salient points with your parents? Well, it, you know, it was fun. Um, uh, we didn't always argue salient points. I, I think a, a lot of people are under the impression that uh, every dinner was like a, a salon conversation where we were, uh, you know, disputing the finer points of, uh, of one debate or another. But, you know, we did we did talk politics and religion a little bit, but um, mostly it was just fun. We talked about all sorts of things. We talked about television or, you know, of course, the, you know how our days were and what each of us did and told jokes and told stories. It was fun, and I, I really miss uh, – I enjoyed it growing up. My father always made the point of being home for dinner, which was, which was hard for him. Um, you know, it's easy to spend – when you have a job like that, to spend all day at the office. But he made a point of being home with us and um, saying grace uh, before every dinner and uh, – I know, kind of really left an impression on me about about the importance of spending that kind of time. Did you ever have to give any kind of a persuasive presentation to your parents about something that you really wanted in life, whether it be, would be to, oh, I don't know, break curfew or, or take the car or whatever that uh, turned into a, a very good discussion for you and your parents? Uh, I can think of a couple instances. One is when I tried to convince my dad that he would... Uh, that he would like um, a band I liked. I think it was Radiohead at the time. And I was trying to, you know, he had, he liked opera and classical. There was no way I was actually going to persuade him to listen to them. But, but uh, I, I summoned up some arguments appealing to his interest in um, uh, sophisticated musicianship and fine lyrics and things like that. Uh, he never did eventually listen to Radiohead, but it was a fun argument to make. Uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, like any kid, I would try to talk my talk my way out of having to do to do work. Uh, usually, with my dad, it would be work around the yard, um, and I never convinced him to let me, or rarely convinced him to let me off the hook. There, the only time I finally made my case was when um, we discovered I was very allergic to bees, and and and. The only time that I ever got stung was when I was doing yard work. So that, that got me off the hook finally. Yeah, I read something that you wrote about um, you didn't feel he had time to mow the lawn and you wanted him to do it. And he said something to the effect of, don't you think a Supreme Court justice yeah. also has things to do? <laughs> I had a cross-country meet and, uh, and he wanted me to mow the, the yard. So he he did it and he made me feel guilty by reminding me that um, <laughs> you know he had other things to do too. When you were setting out to put together this work, which has uh, all kinds of memories that you've assembled, uh, speeches that he gave or reflections that you have, uh, how how difficult was it to limit a book? I'm sure publishers only want a book of uh, X amount of a size. And uh, how did you manage to get that put together? Well, that, that really was the hardest part. We read close to 200 speeches. Um, my co-editor was Ed Whalen, who uh, clerked for my father. And uh, it was, there were so many great speeches um, about so many, uh, so many different topics, including a few surprising ones. The hardest part was choosing which to include. Um, but we, we wanted to just select speeches we thought that general readers, not, not legal specialists, 
would not, or I should say, not only legal specialists would enjoy. Um, and so that that was kind of like the the guiding framework of uh, of how to go about um, deciding which ones not to include. Um, but we ended up including uh, four dozen speeches. So there's there's plenty of variety in here, and I think. Uh, something to interest everybody, but I think a lot of people will be interested by all the speeches. They're really high quality throughout. We know that um, the uh, the court sometimes seems very, very uh, polarized, divided, whatever you want to say, but I think there's really something in this court that could be a lesson to other people in the country who often feel divided and polarized, and that is the relationship between your dad and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, two, uh, an unlikely pair, to say the least, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, they they didn't agree much uh, politically or, or legally, but they had been friends since really the early 80s when they f- were first on a court together. And they, um, they had that friendship up to the end of his life. She wrote the foreword to this book. Um, really grateful she did that. And my father... Uh, delivered a roast for her when when uh, he was on the Supreme Court and she was still on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And it was a very, very funny roast, but also very moving because uh, he he tells her how much he misses working with her and what a great, co- great colleague uh, she was, n- not knowing that in a couple of years she would be back on the court with him. Um, I think you're right. Their, their friendship is a testament and, and a reminder to all of us that, that there's more to life than politics, and uh, it's possible to um, have very great friendships with uh, with people you disagree with, they focused on what they had in common, and they had uh, they had more than enough in common to have a, a very long and enduring friendship. Did you ever? Did you spend much time with her or any of the other justices? I mean, uh, it's a strange situation because they're so high profile. But here you are as a a younger guy, and uh, your dad's on the court. Did you manage to? have any interaction with them, and, and is there somebody that stands out to you as uh, a wonderful person or a great influence in your own life? Well, uh, yeah, I did spend some time with them, uh, just, you know, at, at usually formal social occasions, maybe events at the courts or, or weddings. Um, Justice Gins- we invited Justice Ginsburg to, I invited her to my wedding. She wasn't able to make it, but she got us a very nice gift, and um, Justice Byron White lived in my neighborhood, and he was uh, he was a great neighbor. I delivered his newspapers, and he never complained when we got in there late. And he gave me a nice graduation present for high school. And um, they were just all um, they were all very nice to, to to us, to my family, when whenever I encountered them, and especially after my father's death, they were extraordinarily supportive um, and caring and concerned, um, and and really a great help, to, in particular to my mother. When uh, we think about uh, the work that your dad did, it, it obviously is so important because these decisions are watched very closely by a lot of people in the country. Can you recall a time when your your dad was in his study at night, maybe struggling over something? Did he ever talk to you about this work or in the aftermath of a particular decision where he was maybe trying to explain to you why he came to a certain conclusion? Yeah, well, I would I would ask him questions about cases um, after they were 
um, after the opinions were delivered, uh, just to, if I didn't understand what he wrote or what whatever whoever wrote the opinion he sided with, if I didn't understand a point, I would just ask for clarification. He would never uh, give me any new insights that people who are better at reading opinions would have gotten. But, uh, yeah, I did talk to him about things like that. And occasionally he would, uh, really only a couple of times, he would ask me questions about... Um, not really what I, certainly not what I would decide, but what I thought of a particular point. Um, but, you know, he, he would never, he couldn't tell us how he was going to vote. Um, and certainly, I don't think I ever had any influence in, in how he voted, but he was just kind of pick my, would occasionally try to pick our brains a little bit. Um, but uh, for the most part, I tried not to, it's not that I didn't try to, it's not that I avoided talking to him about the court, and I certainly did talk to him about his work a little bit, but, but we had so many other things to talk about um, apart from him. You know, there, there are nine of us, uh, nine children and my mom. There are plenty of other topics for conversation. So um, I would say, you know, that was one of the things we just talked about the least. Did you ever have a, a conversation with him where you disagreed with one of these decisions and and said you know can you explain to me why i mean i is is that a fair question you know i honestly don't remember a conversation like that um i found myself um being siding with my father and, and his reasoning in in every instance i can think of um there may have been an instance where i thought he was wrong but i would certainly wouldn't think that i knew better than him uh, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, no, no, no examples of that come to mind. When you uh, look back at uh, the the loss of your dad, which was so sudden to people, I mean, he he was he he was older. I mean, he was seventy nine, and that's older. But still, at the same time, he he seemed so vital. And uh, some of these individuals working on the courts just uh, seem like you know there's no end in sight for them. Um, and then, of course, it it forced this very public. Um, searching for his replacement. And, of course, there was a lot of uh, rancor on that because of uh, the nomination under President Obama that uh, was not acted upon. What was it like in the aftermath of, of your dad's death in these regards? Well, I, I mean, obviously, the the biggest effect, I, I'm aware that there were huge political um, repercussions, but for me and for my family, the, it was uh the the personal consequences and, and and the pain in that regard was was very powerful and and obviously what concerned us the most um he wasn't he wasn't young uh, he was vital but he wasn't in perfect health uh so it was it was shocking to us and um you know just, i think the hardest thing was just not not seeing him the last time and not not being able uh or not knowing when the the last time I saw him would be the last time and uh not not really getting a chance to say goodbye to him that that was painful and obviously I'm not the only child who's had to go through that um but that was the most painful part of it for me and uh I'm still at this stage where and and I'm told this never really stops I I want to tell him something something happens in my day or I read something and I think oh dad would love this and I I want to tell him and I, I there's a split second where i forget that that i won't be able to anymore L- little things like that are still pretty difficult what made you decide to put this work together what was the driving force for you well i i thought it was really important for um as many people as possible 
um, to encounter my father's idea and person ideas and personality. So uh, the legal the legal ideas and were obviously the most important. Um, and this collection is a great opportunity for um, general readers, not just legal scholars, to understand my father's uh, point of view and, and reasoning for being the kind of judge that he was. Um, and beyond that, I thought it was I thought people would just like like to know more about him and his his views on religion and uh, and just his uh, his understanding of the American founding of what makes America a great country um, and the things he enjoyed. The, this this collection gives a lot of insights into his childhood, like the games and sports he played when he was growing up in Queens and his pastimes like turkey hunting and things things like that. So I saw it just as an important way to kind of establish his legacy and, and to help him help his ideas uh, endure. How's your mom doing, and does she like the book? Um, my mom is, is doing well. She's a very strong woman, um, and she has a lot of support from, from her friends and, um, and her, her many children and grandchildren, so it's one of the advantages of a big family, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, she likes the book. She... she uh, uh, I think it's. I think she likes it for one of the reasons I think a lot of people will like it is that my father's voice comes through very clearly in the speeches, and it's it's as if uh, it's as if he's still speaking. It's, it's a powerful experience. That's Christopher Scalia, author of the book Scalia Speaks: Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The good-for-you, bad-for-you reporting on the foods we eat is in constant evolution and occasional contradiction. Throw diets into the mix and let increased levels of confusion begin. Dr. Aaron Carroll is a professor of pediatrics and associate dean for research mentoring at Indiana University School of Medicine. He concentrates on the study of information technology and is the author of a new book, The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. He spoke to us recently about the findings that went into that book. So as a health services researcher, one of my main jobs is to to look at how evidence and data can be used to help us make better decisions about health. And I'm writing for The New York Times for a number of years in that topic and a lot of my most popular columns were always when we focused on food when i looked at the evidence and the research behind coffee or alcohol or uh, looking at meat and red meat and the dangers of red meat and what i found was that if you look at the collective evidence if you really get it all and you put it all together that the proclamations against so many of the foods that the people say are bad for you just aren't there. The data and the evidence don't stack up. The studies aren't powerful. They're small. They conflict with each other. And it's only by cherry picking that you can make a lot of these foods look really bad, that we should not be nearly as worried as many people would have us believe. All right. Let's have a for instance where something has absolutely been demonized beyond belief. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one good one would be, you know, I think cholesterol is a good one to start with just because the, the evidence was so clear. Back in the 70s and 80s and even to the 90s, we were told you shouldn't eat eggs, no more than one a day, you should avoid shrimp, you should avoid other foods with cholesterol. And 
because everybody thought, well, the high cholesterol in blood is known to lead to, to heart disease, and therefore if you have high cholesterol that you're eating, it's gonna, one's going to cause the other. But when they did truly good studies and they randomized people to get three eggs a day or no eggs a day, we found out that truly what you eat in terms of cholesterol has almost no relationship with how much cholesterol is in your blood. And in the last set of nutritional guidelines from the USDA, they literally say cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. Eat as many eggs as you like. We are 100% wrong. If you look at salt, which is another example, you know, there's some evidence out there that people who have high blood pressure, who eat a lot of salt, are probably doing themselves harm. But if you don't have high blood pressure, and even some of the people that do, salt has no relationship to, to your health, and you're, there's no need to avoid it. Most Americans eat on average about three, three and a half grams of sodium a day. That's right in the sweet spot for health. And yet, a lot of organizations tell you don't eat any salt, eat lower, eat no more than two milligrams a day or one and a half milligrams a day, even though there are big studies out there of hundreds of thousands of people that show that there's evidence that eating a very low salt diet leads to a higher risk of heart disease and death than eating too much salt. And yet we are very slow to change our recommendations or acknowledge those kinds of facts. And why is that in your opinion? Well, I think we get into stories where we believe these things are true, they make sense intuitively, or because we see that, hey, for this one small group, if we change this or limit that, it must be that we should do it even more, and it should apply to even more people. Unfortunately, that rarely turns out to be the case. I think it's also that we all we feel good when we identify something that we can point at and say, that's the blame. That's what's causing our problem. So we've had fat. You know, people can point at GMOs. They can point at gluten. They can point at gluten. They can point at, you know, fat or red meat and say, that's it. If I just eliminate that from my diet, I'm going to be fine. There's lots of money to be made in those kinds of diets. People like get to, you know, feel good that they are sort of moralizing and proclaiming that they have figured it out. Unfortunately, in almost all of those cases, avoiding that nutrient or trying to live without it does no good whatsoever. In terms of uh, diets, uh, Dr. Yeah. Carroll, I'm a, my goodness, uh, there are all kinds of them out there and some of them you know, they're, they're fatty and they come and go. I, I heard about one recently, yep. the blood diet. Eat by your blood diet what you should eat. Oh, yes. I've heard of that one, too. And there's, there's no evidence for this. This is one of those where it's like you have to sort of own that we're animals and that we all sort of developed in nature and evolution and everything else. There's no way that the rest of the animals in the world are changing their diets based upon their blood type. They don't even know what their blood type is. The idea that humans need to do this is crazy. I mean, there's just no evidence or research or any good science that backs up that any of these fad diets work. When you do head-to-head -head, uh, comparisons of diets in general, they almost all function the same way. They work for a short period of time, then people plateau and they often bounce back and gain more weight because it's very hard to change our behavior and when we get into the idea that we have to avoid certain things and avoid them and avoid them and avoid them we often overcompensate in other unhealthy ways oh wow that is i believe to be true now although we see in america the number of people who are now classified as obese so i'm sure people bring this question up to you all right smarty pants may i call you smarty pants Sure, go ahead. All right, smarty pants. We have uh, diets that are not working right, et cetera. We have these foods that uh, maybe you can eat uh, that you were told not to eat. Uh, why do we have all the obesity of our world? And what is your suggestion possibly for curbing it? 
So that, that's probably multifactorial. I think we have to own that science is to blame a bit because I think as we forced everyone to, to adopt low-fat diets in the 60s and 70s and we told them that you also have to stop, you know, have to start avoiding meat, the only nutrient left with calories was carbs. And so everybody flocked to eating all kinds of grains and carbs and that may have actually contributed to, to a change in diet that led to the obesity epidemic. And now we're trying to, we're seeing a backlash of people who are now anti-carb. But at the same time, uh, processed food became much more common and it became really easy to get a lot of calories into our body with not much effort. Um, and it became too easy to eat foods. And we started making everything simpler and simpler and simpler to get it inside ourselves. Um, I think nutrition in general is a very individual thing. Uh, people will figure out what works for them or what doesn't work for them. But at the end of the book, I sort of get into some ideas of what you might do to try to eat more healthily. And a lot of them involve avoiding processed foods, not in the sense of like, I think, you know, super processed foods that are made with tons of chemicals, but even foods that have already been cooked, packaged, changed in some way, they're, they're just making it easier for you. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. So trying to do as much cooking as you can, trying to stick to unprocessed foods as much as you can. You know, some processed foods are fine, even some highly processed foods, but keep it to a minimum. Watch how many calories you're drinking, because again, that's a processed food. You've figured out a way. Apple juice is just a quicker way to get the apple-y calories into you than eating an apple. Uh, and so any beverage with calories, you have to sort of think about it as you would alcohol. Have it because you want it or like it, but not because you need it. You know, don't be fooled into thinking you must have a glass of orange juice every morning. Um, and then, you know, to, to try to do as much cooking of things which are reasonably healthy, using things like salt and butter and other things which are meant to help flavor food and make good food appetizing, doing that as much as possible. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it'll, it'll lead to overnight changes, but probably sticking more to moderation and common sense is going to work than any fad diet or anything that you're going to try to avoid thinking that will fix your life. Bravo on the usage of multifactorial, by the way, A+. plus. Now, let's talk about just sugar. Is the sugar an angel? Is it a demon? I know mm. that it's it's hidden in so many things, Dr. Carol, right. that you think, oh, gosh, I'll just have this yogurt. And then you read the label and you find out, holy moly, this thing is packed with sugar. So sugar in and of itself is not the devil. Um, sugar that occurs naturally in foods are fine. So the sort of the, the very, very strict anti-carbohydrate or paleo people who want, want no, no carbohydrate whatsoever, there's no evidence for that at all. That sugar's fine. What's not fine, and the one thing I hedge on in the book, are added sugars. It's when we're basically just taking fructose and adding it to stuff that doesn't need it because it's easier to make processed food that way. That's not good for you. Um, very highly sugared beverages, putting sugar in things like spaghetti sauce and soups and things that you otherwise wouldn't know. That's what I mean where the danger in processed food lies, in that they're at doing a lot of added sugars. That's not so good. Um, but they also, you know, they add lots of sodium in ways that you don't need as well. If we could get away from the processed foods, adding the sugar that's necessary, which isn't much, adding the salt that's necessary to make food taste good, which is necessary to make food taste good, that's fine. And that's actually going to work out just well. It's part of a healthy diet. But all that extra added sugar, that's not good for you at all. All right, let's talk about uh, coffee. And there's another thing where, honestly, it flips back and forth about uh, whether or not I should be drinking coffee or you should. And um, your thoughts on that. Also, can you give us any kind of um, advice on 
these energy shots, drinks, Red Bull, Monster, etc. Yeah, no, okay, well, let me do the latter first. Okay. All those, those energy drinks are not, there's no science behind them at all. There's no research uh, that, that says that they are providing the benefits they are. They're not regulated by the FDA, and they're, they're just not necessary. Um, coffee, on the other hand, it was one of the first articles I wrote at the New York Times. It was probably one of the first big articles I remember writing at the New York Times. If you look at the collected evidence on coffee, it is stunning how positive it is. You know, there are some things where I come down in the book and say, well, you know, this just isn't as dangerous as people would have you believe. Coffee, the evidence goes shockingly in the positive direction, where drinking up to like six cups a day of coffee is associated with lower risks of all kinds of cancers, of heart disease, of mortality, of liver disease, you know, almost anything you could pick, even, even some of the neurologic diseases. I wouldn't say it's randomized controlled trial proven that this is going to cure you, but the the, the, the collected evidence and the epidemiologic evidence we have absolutely leans in that this is a good thing, not a bad thing. There's almost no evidence out there to say that you should avoid coffee, you shouldn't have coffee, or you're going to be addicted to coffee. Um, it's, again, I never tell people start this if you don't drink it, but I've seen articles that end that way, that even, you know, with some liver disease and things like that, where they're like, this evidence looks so good, we're almost leaning in the idea that we should be advising people to drink coffee. It's, it absolutely, look, if it was, if we had these kind of results around any kind of drug, people would be promoting it as, as a miracle cure. Um, but, but it's just, it is just stunning how still people think coffee's a vice or something that needs to be avoided. Here's one uh, that uh, we all think is good, but in your book, maybe it's not as good as we think, and that would be milk. So uh, talk about that. So one that wasn't as good, I'd say, you know, well, sugar. Sugar's not as good. Uh, it's like, and to be honest with you, I've, I've often been surprised at how, you know, we, we, we push milk so hard, and milk doesn't have nearly the body of evidence behind it that, that many would have you believe. That whole milk does a body good campaign or the, you know, you, you have strong bones because of milk. There's the studies that, that use milk and give it to women with osteoporosis and try to supplement with them with calcium. It doesn't do really any good. Giving kids milk, you know, certainly if they're calcium deprived is a good thing, but the vast majority of kids in America are not. And pushing all this milk on them doesn't do much good. Milk is a caloric beverage. And as I said before, you should treat all beverages with calories like you treat alcohol. You should have them because you want them, not because you need them. Uh, and sort of our continued, continued push that people should be drinking milk into adulthood. There's no other animal on the planet that does that, and we're probably pushing it a lot harder than we need to. Do we need to drink skim milk because that stuff is disgusting? So I would not, like, I put full heavy cream in my coffee at this point because I just want to use a little bit of it, and I just think it tastes better. And, you know, skim milk actually has more calories in it than, than, than sugar in it than does fat milk because, of course, that's, that's what they have to replace it. There's no, I mean, you know, you certainly don't want to be drinking too much of anything, but the pendulum is swinging the other way when it comes to milk. It, again, as I said before, I would treat it as a beverage. It's a treat. And if you're going to have a treat, own it as a treat. Drink the milk you would like. No one needs milk as an adult the way that it's pushed. So you shouldn't feel like you have to have skim milk because you need the milk and skim milk's going to be healthier for you. There's not much evidence for that at all. And finally, booze. We got to talk about booze before I let you go. Yep. So Look, alcohol abuse is terrible, and, and drinking too much alcohol is a horrific thing that leads to significant morbidity and mortality in the world, and I'm, I'm not pushing alcohol in that respect. But 
The collected evidence for people who are moderate drinkers or light drinkers, meaning no more than one to two drinks a day for a man or maybe about one drink a day for a woman, the evidence is surprisingly positive. Um, you can find studies that can link it you know, to some increased risk of some cancers. There's truth to that. But again, that's cherry picking. If you look at it holistically, those same kinds of studies show a significant benefit with respect to death and to heart disease. And the benefits actually seem to swamp the, the, the increased risk that you might get with some kinds of cancer. Now, again, I'm not telling you to go out and start drinking because it is good for you. But in moderation, in the amounts that have been studied, there's very little evidence that moderate drinking or light drinking is, is bad for you, and it absolutely can be hard, part of a healthy diet. Dr. Aaron Carroll is the author of The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. See T-Mobile.com. 